0: Well, hello, thanks for joining me this afternoon. And uh, this is going to actually be a re-recording of a message that was uh, done uh, two weeks ago. And the reason we're recording it is because there were a lot of requests for it and uh, the fact that um, it didn't record at all. So that's why we're redoing it. So join me in prayer and then we'll get started. Father in heaven, as we do this, I don't know that it's possible to recapture the spirit of what took place that morning when this message was given. But uh, we would give that up to you and ask that you might recapture not only the words but also um, what you were conveying because there was far more going on than just me speaking that morning. And we ask that that would somehow translate uh, with integrity in this recording. And so we give that to you with great hope and ask this in your name. Amen. All right, so we've been uh, it's just starting a, a sermon series called The Culture of Offense. And we talked about how we live in a culture of offense and that it's actually part of uh, wrapping. The uh, first slide I want to show you here is just the resources that we've been pulling from. I'm using John Brevere's book, The Bait of Satan. And uh, then also um, Nate Hedinga, the pastor at Cascade Community Church, has done a series called Trapped. And then also Jim Wilson's booklet, Free from Bitterness. And those are all ones that uh, if you have an interest in, you can get a hold of them. But let's start with Matthew chapter 24. It's an end times passage, but we're using it this uh, afternoon um, in this series. And it says, it reads this, this is in the New King James Version. It says, then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. And then because many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. The Greek word therefore for offense, uh, translated in NIV, turn away in New King James is translated um, Offended is the Greek word for on. and last week I used this rat trap and said that the piece that you put the peanut butter or cheese or whatever, tasty little bit, the trigger point is known as the scandalon on the trap, right? It's the thing that springs the trap, and so we are being baited, and in our culture what we are being baited with is grabbing onto the sin of offense, We think that that will uh, help us. So the question then becomes, how does offense trap us? What exactly does it do to us? Uh, You may be sitting there this morning and carrying huge offenses and say to yourself, I'm certainly not dead. But I want to suggest to you there's a lot of different types of death. And I want us to look at what this sin of offense is Uh, attached to what it's linked to so that we will be able to uh, understand how deadly it is. Because make no mistake about it, if you are a rat, this is designed to kill you. This is not your friend. It only postures as a friend in offering you something good to eat. But the end goal is to kill you. And the same is true with the sin of taking offense. So let's look at the, the trap of offense. If you start, it starts with, offense. And uh, to use a fishing analogy, if you're a fish, uh, once you're hooked, it's hard to get unhooked. We often talk about fishing and the big one that got away, right? And there's all those kind of stories. But very seldom do we talk about the ones that didn't get away. There's a lot of fish that when they're hooked, that is the end for them because they bit something they thought was attractive or was food, and it actually um, was the end of their life. Proverbs 18 uh, verse 19 says this about the sin of offense. An offended brother is more unyielding than a fortified city. And disputes are like the barred gates of a citadel. Now, understand in that, that day when this was written, there was nothing stronger than a fortified city. Right? And the idea there is that once a brother is offended, it is harder to get to him than an offended city or to get behind barred gates. And some of us know that. We have experienced in that. We have done something. Uh, and we have tried to gain back the relationship, and it has been like trying to get through the bars of a gate or a fortified city. They don't want anything to do with us. Or if you've been offended, you know how your walls go up, and you're not going to let somebody in, right? And so this sin of offense is is huge. From offense, then, we step uh, next to uh, anger. And when we deal with anger, one of the things that, Uh, scripture teaches is that the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And that's a problem for a lot of us because for a lot of us, anger is kind of the root power source for us. It's where we get our energy and drive from. If something makes us angry, we go after it and we charge it. And it's what gives us our power. And yet scripture says the anger of man does not accomplish the righteousness of God. And, and I learned this in a very personal and painful way uh, back in my ministry years where the Lord spoke to me. And, and I had to wrestle with this myself. God's trying to warn us though. In Proverbs 30, verse 33, it says, for as the churning of the milk produces butter, and I know how that works because I grew up on a dairy farm, so I actually have done that and know that works. And as the twisting of the nose produces blood, That one's not quite so pretty, right? You take somebody and crank on their nose and it creates a bloody nose. So it says the stirring up of anger produces strife. And the idea there is that uh, when anger gets stirred up, it stirs up contention among the brotherhood. It stirs up contention within a church. And we would often say that that kind of contention, if not resolved, leads to a church split. And uh, guys, just a side note for you on this, um, as we're talking, um, gals, you can listen in for free, but um, for guys, one of the things that we need to understand as men is that lust is always anger-based. Most people wonder, why is uh, pornography have such a hold on men? Why is it such an access point? And the reason is it's because it's an access or a portal for lust. Lust is always anger-based. It's always anger-driven. And so therefore, if I'm angry, I am much more prone to fall into the temptation of lust because lust is a secondary trigger off of, off of anger. Anyways, we'll move on. Stop meddling there. After anger, if I don't handle it, so if I get offended, it shoots down to anger. If I don't handle it on the anger level, then it, the next step is towards bitterness, Hebrews 12, 14, and 15 says this, Make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up and causes trouble and defiles many. And the idea here is that um, grace and bitterness are opposed to each other. And if you're not careful, one of the ways that you can miss the grace of God is being trapped by the root of bitterness. And it says here that uh, the bitter root grows up and causes trouble, it defiles many. Another translation says it stains, right? And you've probably seen that. We've probably seen that in our lives where somebody gets bitter and it stains a whole marriage or it stains a whole family or it stains a family system. You know, we laugh at the Hatfields and McCoys and those kind of history things of us. But the truth is we know how that works because bitterness becomes entrenched. Uh, John Brevere quotes Francis Fragapini, another writer, and and he says, Bitterness is unfulfilled revenge. The reason I stay bitter is because I have not yet been able to take revenge on who I want to. Uh, I want to carry out vengeance for what was done. And so when I can't do it, then I stew and I... I go over it in my spirit and it becomes toxic and we call that bitterness. Romans 12 uh, says this, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everybody. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary... If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's hard to do if I'm hanging on to an offense. If I have an offense that I'm not willing to let go of, then I get trapped in these steps that we're talking about. If I don't take care of it on a bitterness level, then the next level... Is this one, and that's rage. Rage, or, we could call it hatred. And um, in our um, culture, we have actually um, we have terms for that: road rage, right? Postal rage, going postal on somebody. We, it's, it's built into our, our language and our lexicon now, and we know that. Um, Frederick Buchner has this quote, and it's a great quote. He says this about rage. Of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds, to smack your lips over grievances long past, to roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come, to savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are giving back in many ways is a feast fit for a king. The chief drawback is that you are wolfing, what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. Our tendency to rage carries a lot of implications. Proverbs nineteen three says this, a man's own folly ruins his life and yet his heart rages against the Lord. We mess up, but then we blame God for it and we get mad and we rage against him. We rage against other people and uh, we become in many ways skeletons, way less than who we really are. Because we're consumed by rage, we're consumed by anger, and we become toxic inside. And part of our dream in, in a church is, at here is that we've said we want to see the manifest presence of God. We want to see God working through the Holy Spirit. We want to see his life evidenced among us. So when people would walk in, they'd go, wow, I don't know what's going on at that place, but I've never felt the presence of God like that uh, in my life. That's incredible what's going on there. And one of the things that Satan knows is that people are deeply attracted to that kind of spirit in a group of people because it's not about the group of people, it's about what God's doing in that group of people. And so one of the ways that he can kill that, he can curb that, he can deaden it, is he can uh, get us to bite again this trap, this scandal on, this bait of offense. How well does worship work If we're all offended at each other. How well, couples, if you are in a marriage, how well does uh, prayer work if you're offended with each other? How well does parenting work? Satan knows what the sin of offense will do and he knows what it starts is a process of hardening our hearts. We no longer hear God. We no longer hear from other people. And we're just stewing over how we have been offended. And instead of being full of life, full of light uh, from the Lord, we end up starting to become bent and malignant in our spirit. And how you know is when we get bumped. Um, Often we'll say, well, if it wasn't for the pressure I was under, uh, that would have never come out. Well, no, that's not really true. The truth is it's in there and the pressure just bumped it and what's in you spills out, right? And uh, if you... Uh, get bumped and it spills out in joy, that's what was going on. And if you get bumped and what spills out of you is bitterness, that's what was in the container to start with. And so the idea isn't so much that it's not there. It's just we don't like being bumped so that it gets revealed for what's in there because we like to smile and posture. And how are you doing? Fine. But inside we can be a brewing cauldron of emotions that seethe within us. I'd like to take a look the... Uh, poster child for this in scripture is King Saul. And so if you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17, we're going to go through a lot of scripture here. I'm not going to read all of it. I'll tell you some of the story, but um, you can kind of take your finger and and cruise along. Uh, And in here, we're in one of the famous stories of Scripture, it's David and Goliath, right? And you know that story. And one of the problems with Goliath is we often make him into kind of a cartoon character. If you've ever watched Veggie Tales, you know, he's a giant cucumber and a kind of a lumbering sloth and, you know, ho ho, ho ho, ho ho kind of thing. And I want to suggest to you that Goliath was anything but that, he was an enormous threat. He was an enormous athlete. He was a tour de force. Nobody knew how to come against him. He was an athlete and a warrior since a young age. He had weapons the size of a man and he was very efficient and good at using them. And there was a reason he paraded himself out and stood before the army of Israel and defied them to bring out a man because they weren't even willing to come against him as an army. We are talking about a serious, serious threat here. A terrifying threat. And in this, we pick up the story where he comes out and he is challenging the army of Israel to send out a man to duel with him. And in this story, uh, we pick up where David and King Saul are having a dialogue, and David says that he will go out and fight Goliath. And so then in verse 38, we pick it up. It says, Saul dressed David in his own tunic, and he put on a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. And so he took them off and then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Now here's the interesting point. When David put on Saul's armor, it didn't fit, it was... Uh, too big, and it was clunking and walking around. Why didn't Saul's armor fit David? Well, there's a good reason for that. Because Saul's armor wasn't made for David. Who was it made for? It was made for Saul. Saul's armor was designed to fit Saul, not David. Who should have fought Goliath? Saul should have fought Goliath. He was the anointed one, of Israel. He was the king of Israel. Scripture says, if you read the account of Saul, he stood head and shoulders above any man in Israel. So although he wasn't as big as Goliath, because Goliath stood about nine feet tall, but even though he wasn't as big as Goliath, he was bigger than any other man in Israel, and he was their leader and king, and it was he that should have gone out and faced the challenge in the strength of the Lord. But he didn't do it. He was fearful along with the men. And so he tried to equip David with his tunic and his equipment and his sword. Why? Because if David killed Goliath, then Saul could say, well, he did it with my armor. You ever seen somebody do that? Well, yeah, you know, he did win, but it was because I helped him out, right? Kind of a weak sister move there. And so uh, this goes out and, and David actually... Um, conquers and wins and what's interesting is this is one of those things in life where you ever seen where it seems unbeatable or undoable one of those impossible things but then somebody does it and as soon as they do it it doesn't look so impossible anymore right because somebody has already done it and suddenly Saul is caught with this pang of conscience that oh, that really could have gotten done I could have gone out there if that little pipsqueak did it, I certainly could have done it. And he starts to double guess because it's like, well, wait a minute. Why is he getting all the credit? And if you go down uh, to chapter 18 and look at verse six, when they're coming back from the battle, here's the telltale thing. It says, when the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine... The women came out of all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, David his ten thousands. It says Saul was very angry for this refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. What happened when the young gals from all the villages of women came out singing? Saul took an offense. And that offense so quickly deteriorated him that it went from offense to anger to bitterness to rage. And the logical, logical result? Attempted murder. The word galled is interesting. I... We always use the word, but never know what it means. So I looked it up to see what galled actually means because I like that phrase, this refrain, galled him. And galled simply means to make or become sore by rubbing. rubbing. Modern translation, that rubbed my spirit the wrong way. Right, we use that. If you've ever been hiking and uh, we would say, man, I was hiking and I got chafed, right? And it's just a raw wound kind of thing. And that's what this means. It says it galled him that they have credited David with tens of thousands. Because why? Saul knew he should have done it himself. He didn't do it. David did it. And now the honor that should have been his was stolen from him and given to another person. All right? Have you ever been galled in your spirit? Uh, for example, maybe at at work, uh, you were lined up for a promotion or a credit, uh, something like that, and, and somebody else, through cleverness or or cunning, um, took it right out from under you and took that promotion away, and that should have been yours. You ever been galled? Or you ever been galled um, just in, in the community where you should have received honor, and instead uh, someone else got the honor you should have gotten, and they stole the credit from you? Um, this happens all the time. And this is what happened to Saul. He... Uh, became galled. If you look in, uh, just go down to verse 10, chapter 18, it says, The next day an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. And this is some of the most interesting verses in scripture right here. It says, Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. And so we see now Saul's offense has turned murderous. And his solution is, I will take away the problem. I will I will kill the barrier that's between me and the honor I seek. And I will wipe out David. The end of the matter, we find Saul at the end of his life consulting actually a medium, a witch. He's gone from being a man who's anointed by God to the end of his life consulting a witch as to what will happen because the Spirit of the Lord no longer answered him. Now, here's the question. We can see that Saul was affected by this. We can see that uh, it deeply uh, affected his life. Matter of fact, in the end, it ended up not only with his forfeiture of his kingship, but it ended up uh, with him costing his life. But who did it really affect? And I want to suggest to you parents, if you're listening this morning, who it really affected was his children. If you look at his children and the effect it had on them, you can see the impact. Jonathan, his son, in chapter 20, um, Saul's anger flared against his son Jonathan, because Jonathan had taken Saul's side or David's side. And so he had given David his cloak, and he given David his bow and arrow, and he gave David his sword, and said, I know that the Lord has made you king, and when you become king, I promise to follow you. And I promise to serve you. I will hand my kingdom over to you because you are the one the Lord has anointed. This absolutely infuriated Saul. Okay? You can see how the sin of offense now has become malignant. Listen how he rages against his own son. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Now why is that's a great compliment, right? I mean, how would you like to be Saul's wife at that point? Okay. He's, he's screaming at his son, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Notice he doesn't say a perverse and rebellious father. That's what he should have really said. But we always pass the blame, right? Saul's no different. Passes the blame on to the wife. And he targets moms, dads, dads especially. How do children do when we rail on them like that? How do they, what effect does that have when we buck them with our words that hard? What do you think the effect of this was on Jonathan? He goes on to say, Don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of the mother who bore you? By the way, can you see the insanities of those two statements? On one side he says, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman. On the other side, look at how you shamed your poor mother. And this is what happens when we get and and grab onto the sin of offense and we start to get bitter and we start to go toxic. What happens is our logic no longer makes sense. We say opposite and contrary things. I love you and you're stupid. You ever had your kids look at you and go, you know, what you just said doesn't line up? Then we get mad because they're pointing out that it didn't line up. Right? But we say things that make no sense whatsoever. Because we're caught on the offense and we're trying to plow through the offense. We haven't thought it through enough to figure out how that's coming across to the people who are listening to us. He says, As long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send and bring him to me for he must die. And it says, Jonathan was angry at his father. He could not figure out why his dad would treat somebody as loyal as David the way he treated him. How could his dad turn on David when David had done so much for his father? And it says that Jonathan stormed out of the room. Okay? Doesn't mean Jonathan was perfect. It says he was wrestling with anger. But Jonathan had a way of getting out of it where his father didn't. The other person who had deeply affected was his daughter. Uh, this story uh, is of his daughter Micah and his daughter Micah Saul again was a plot by King Saul to kill David. And so what he said is, hey, I want uh, 200 foreskins of a Philistine, Philistines, and uh, whoever gets that can have my daughter uh, in marriage. And so David went out and got 200 foreskins. And boy, that means don't mess with David. One guy against 200 other warriors and he takes them all on. I don't know how that works. But I would not want to mess with that guy or get him upset, okay? David was a kick-butt dude. He was a force to be reckoned with. You don't mess with this guy. And it just tells you the kind of man he was and what Saul was up against. But he did that, and Saul gave his daughter in marriage. Then later, uh, Saul and Jonathan and his brothers were killed in a battle, and David becomes king. And in the process, he wants to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem so that they can worship in Jerusalem and celebrate in Jerusalem and uh, protect the Ark in the fortified city. And so they start this procession. And if you read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, if you turn there, it says, As the Ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window, and when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, it says this phrase, she despised him in her heart. Like father, like daughter, as father so despised David, daughter despised David, because she recognized that David had the honor that should have gone to her father. And it says she despised him in her heart. And if you read further on, what she says is, oh my goodness, how the king of Jerusalem has distinguished himself today in front of the young maidens of Israel. I.e., what are you doing out there flaunting yourself with all these other women when you're the king of Israel? She was basically accusing David of being lewd and doing it for effect so that he would draw attention to himself. David had nothing in mind like that. He was dancing before the Lord. He said, you know what? You can have that take, but that isn't what I was doing. And then scripture says this telltale comment. From that time on, she was childless and she never gave birth. There's a reason for that. This is not a miracle thing from God that uh, in scripture we read where God closed the womb or God opened the womb kind of stuff. There's a good reason why she never had children again. Husband and wives, if you're bitter... How good does making love together go if you're bitter against each other? How well does that work? It's not a miracle. They never slept together again. And she remained childless the rest of her life because she couldn't get unhooked from the sin of offense. Now, as we're talking about that, one of the questions this morning, and it tells you those stories, and those are powerful stories. You can go back and read them yourself and, and find the details to it. But one of the questions this morning that we want to think about is, how does that affect a church? How does that process, this process of the taking of offense, this scandal on, affect the spirit of a church? And I want to suggest this answer. I want to suggest that it deeply affects a church. Why? Because it deeply affects the Holy Spirit's ability to work, move in and among us. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it tells us, do not put out, quench the Spirit's fire. How do we put out the Spirit's fire? Well, one of the ways that it can very easily happen is we take the sin of offense And we become offended. And it isn't long before we're offended with others, then we become offended with God as well. And it's also true if we get offended with God, we get offended with others. And so it's a very easy trap to fall into. And what happens then is the Holy Spirit isn't able to move among us because he's running into resistance and hardness of heart because we will hold on to the offense instead of what he's asking. You ever had the Holy Spirit say, no, no, don't say it. Don't, no, don't. And then you said it anyways. You ever have the Holy Spirit bump you and say, no, don't, don't grab it. Do not do that. And then you grab it anyways. And right after you do that, you ever notice there's this deadness, this dead feeling inside of you? That's because there is a dead feeling inside of us. We have quenched the Spirit's fire, the Spirit's ability to work among us in our hearts. Ephesians 4 says this, up here for us. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. The idea here of grieving is as a mourning at a funeral. Right? Grieving. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit? How, how is the Holy Spirit grieved? And I want to suggest this. He is grieved when we take and hold offenses against each other. That it causes him great sorrow. That there's a total lack of forgiveness uh, within the body of Christ, within the body of a church. Now, what would be some indicators of an offense taken? Let's look at that quickly. I want to take you to Colossians chapter three, verses eight through eleven. It says this: uh, talk about it's talking about being in the new life of Christ being born again being saved by the lord it says now if that is true of you you must rid yourself of all such things as these look at this list does this not list does this list not look like what we just walked through with the sin of offense anger rage malice slander and filthy language from your lips And do not lie to each other since you've taken off your old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. If you have a problem, for example, with malice or slander and talking bad about brothers and sisters in Christ, that there probably is somewhere in there where you have taken hold of the bait of offense and you are offended, therefore feel justified. Um, Why do we lie to each other? Because we've been offended and we don't want to get caught in it. Uh, Anger, rage, and malice. What you can see, and if you go through the New Testament, there's several lists like this. And you'll see that almost all of them are tied to the warning about uh, stay away from these kinds of sins and stay away from offense and bitterness. We are not to grumble and complain against each other. We are not um, to have offense that way. some other indicators of an offense taken. In Ephesians 4, it says this, In your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Sometimes Satan gains a great foothold in our life, and we know it. And we know that it's not the Lord's voice talking to us. We know that it's the enemy, but we are hooked by it. Why? Because um, In our anger, we choose to sin. How do we sin? We take an offense. By the way, married couples, it says this, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Have you ever been angry at your spouse and then you didn't want to talk about it? Hey, you want to talk about it? No. So you go to sleep. And when you go to sleep, you have a chance to stew on it, probably even dream on it all night long about how angry you are and how offended you are. When you wake up in the morning, is it any better? No. No. Now you're really upset because that little sin, probably that offense taken wasn't all that great, but it's had time to germinate and grow. And instead of a little bush, now it's become a big tree. And now you have a perceived offense that's huge. And now you're really angry. And it becomes this incredible deal that you have to try and work through because look at how you offended me. And I will, I will deal with this when you come back and apologize for having offended me. Well, you're looking at an oak tree. The other person's looking at this little weed that grew up by the ground going, are we talking about the same thing that happened? Are you serious? What's going on here? Right? And that's where scripture says we have to take the plank out of our own eye before we try to take the little speck of dust out of the brothers. That's that picture that comes up. That's why scripture tells us, hey, at night, talk to each other. And pray together. Why do you think there's been such a battle among us when it's come to this idea of couples praying together? Why is it such a big thing? Why do we only pray privately? Because we're mad at our spouse and we want God to fix them. And if God won't fix them, then we're not going to do it. And so as couples, then we don't pray. And then because we don't pray, what happens to the life of the church? What happens to the spirit of worship? It's all affected by that. So this morning, let me ask again this question. Who do you have an offense against? It's a big deal. It's a big deal with your Savior. It's a big deal in the life of the church. Who do you have an offense against? And then the second question, what's the cost if I don't release the offense? If I say, nope, I ain't doing it, what, what's the cost? Well, we're going to look at that level next week. So let's uh, pray together. Father in heaven, thanks for walking through this again. And as we do it, we pray that the slot that this message falls in in this series will be filled and that it will communicate adequately uh, with and against the other messages that are part of this. But Lord, would you help us to understand how serious this taking of an offense is among your body, among your church, among our marriages, in our families. Lord, some of us come from whole family systems that live off of offense. We know what it's like to live with bitter relatives and for have it spill over. But Lord, it's also true. we can be hooked by it. May we not point the finger? May we help you by looking at ourselves? and may we uh, help you by cooperating, by letting go of things? that have offended us. And as we go through this series, we pray that you will make that clear how to do that. And we ask this in your name. Amen.